This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. 42 episodes down, four more to go. We're at the end now, friends, staring at the sea of time, the sea of memory and forgetfulness, waiting for what happens to everything to happen to us, too, an ending. And so it's endings we're thinking about today, for the show, for the movie, for the American fate we're all held hostage to. <sighs> Jeez. Remember when we used to have fun on this thing? There's a line in today's scene. One that comes directly from Thomas Pinchon's novel. It goes like this. May we trust that this blessed ship is bound for some better shore, risen and redeemed, where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. The American fate. That's a notion I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I assume you probably are too. The American fate. What it is, where it's going, and what happens to all of us who live on the land of that fate, a fate which may be permanently cemented one way or another come November 3rd of this year, it all feels very much as if we are coming to the end of something, either the end of something bad or the end of so the last gasp and end of something good. So <laughs> with that heaviness in mind, uh, it's that mood of endings that, that seems kind of appropriate, seeing as how we are coming to the end of Inherent Vice and the end of this show. Inherent Vice is the story of endings or how they happen. Does it ever end? Sort of liege muses early on? Of course it does. It did. So I'm thinking a lot about endings tonight. And it's that idea of endings, that thread of endings that today's guest picked up on early in his review of Vice upon the film's theatrical release. And he captured it thusly. There's a lot swirling around in writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson's hilarious, freewheeling adaptation of the allegedly unadaptable Pinchon's 2009 psychedelic noir. Maybe too much to absorb in a single viewing. But endings are important here, and I think the key to best appreciating this stubbornly singular entertainment is to view these characters as the last men on the field, still playing a game they're achingly slow to learn is already over. That's a hell of a mood and a hell of a line. And the man who wrote it is sitting here with us tonight. A fucking fantastic writer and film critic with bylines, cats cradling from The Village Voice to Time Out New York to Movie Mezzanine to RogerEbert.com to The Boston Herald, as well as a veteran guest of my internet husband, Blake Howard's One Heat Minute Productions podcasts, of which Increment Vice is one and thus we contractually cannot end this show without at least one appearance from the man. So with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Anchorman Vice, Mr. Sean Burns. 
Ah, shucks. You guys are the best. Aren't we, though? We're pretty good. <laughs> We're all right. How are you? How are you tonight? Uh, these are, uh, it seems like a stupid question. All right, off the bat, I feel like it's a stupid question to ask in the middle of uh, a 2020 election cycle with a global viral pandemic. Uh, I was actually in a really good mood until you started talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still kind of hung over from that last episode, I think. Um, uh, so you're going to have to blame Chad for that. But uh, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of hard not to be thinking of endings right now. The movie's ending, the show is ending, and uh, a lot of things out in the world seem to be coming to one end or another. It's, it's, I don't know about you. Uh, I know you came here for laughs, for lots of uh, tomfoolery and hijinks. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking, thinking about endings tonight. I don't know about you. you no, know, but the one comforting thing you can look at is there are all these feelings going on in something set 50 years ago. That's so very, maybe... that's, that's very true. That's very, very true. Look, kind of a cockeyed optimist there. Um, to quote, well, every uh, once in a while, Kramer. I try to think of that scene in No Country for Old Man when the, you know, the guy's telling Tommy Lee Jones, like, this shit ain't new. Yeah, that's that's very that's a that's a very good point. That's a yeah. and yet and yet as I how as much I, of it really is our generational narcissism? <laughs> we have to well, be like, oh well, the ending's on our watch. Like. I that's the thing is I but that you know we we boy we're diving in. We've talked about this on the show. Is I think what makes this story so powerful is not is is not that it is prophetic. It is simply indicating that nothing has changed, uh, except maybe get a little grimmer, and that whatever, whatever kind of cancerous rot was into the already into the marrow and the DNA of things of America of the American fate uh, in 1970 it has only gotten worse. And 50 years later, here we are, kind of reckoning with it in real time. Uh, but you know, hey, seems easier you... to get laid back then. You're right. <laughs> It was it was a more innocent time, but hey, if you want to follow the the thinking of notorious optimist Cormac McCarthy, uh, <laughs> and just think that you know America's going to be a okay, you know, you're probably well, sleep, you're, that far, you're, you're, you're probably sleeping better at night than than I am. But yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah, the American fate. That's that's the line from this scene, and that's kind of the that's the through line for me of this moment of this, this episode, I guess. And here it feels like we're standing on the shore of it with uh, clumps of it uh, breaking off into the sea and hopefully not going to take us with it. Hopefully it's just going to take the bad things, but um, yeah, boy, wow. I did, I did kind of start with a downer, didn't I? I did, I did bring you down from the get go. We were all giggles and hugs at the beginning of this thing off air. And now, now I just, uh, I'm dabbing tears away, but um, I don't know how we, I don't know how, we're not going to get to the scene yet, but I don't know how we can be super jovial about this moment. That's going to be on you to bring. You're going to be the superhero that's going to save this episode and keep me from bawling like last time. That's on you. It's on you. That's that's on your show. Well, again, in terms of like how cyclical things are, like, you know, remember like the moment <laughs> of scene we're talking about does have the attorney played by Benicio Del Toro, which is just his job now. I mean, sort of. Yeah, I, 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 we, I really hope to get a trilogy at some point of like one, one more end of an era elegiac monument to the 1960s in which he plays a very difficult to understand lawyer who provides exposition right. to our stoner hero it's a really it's a little, bad lawyer too yeah just not a good lawyer at all dr gonzo uh just not not the most reliable source of uh, of information and nor does uh, sancho smilex seem to be 
the most uh, the most adept and adroit uh, navigator of maritime law <laughs> in the whole wide world. Um, but you know, bless him for trying. Um, but before we start getting into the weeds, we're going to do what we always do, which is we kick we kick things off by talking about how people felt about the f- the film the first time out. And I think going from your review and some of the things I've seen you write online, that uh, you're one of the few folks who actually loved this thing from the jump, or at least really liked it. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was funny. The uh, uh, I saw it a few times, three times before I wrote about it. I saw it um, in the, the two months between seeing it and writing about it. Uh, a friend had gotten an early copy, it was in a critics group. And so I got this weird thing with weed, right? I'll try it like, I used to try it like once a year ago. Oh yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> so my friend who had gotten a copy of the movie was, uh, he was selling drugs to support his film criticism habit. And he was like famous around town for having really great shit. And I was like, well, we've got inherent vice a month before it comes out. Let's do this properly. It's been about a year. This time it'll be different. Travis, it's never different. It's <laughs> Isn't that the point of the movie? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 mean, I got way too into my head. Like I'd start like everyone, uh, I know people get stoned and they're stupid and they laugh like like Beavis and Butthead and, and everything. So they've got this sense of relaxation and well-being. And I have the exact opposite. I'm just turning things over like crazy. So sort of the perfect way to receive the film for the first time. Sure. Where, you know, I, I, I think I was following the plot, which I never have since. <laughs> and i absolutely understood it perfectly and uh the, the way I, the way i never have again and uh i don't think i've ever actually smoked again after that i figured out what it is with weed now they're they're too good at it now like <laughs> if you could still buy the shit my friends and i smoked in high school like the really crappy stuff like that would be okay like i could function on that you want to step on a little bit <laughs> yeah, I want like I want like the garbage. <laughs> well, got that's experts growing things. It's become a science, and now, now I mean it's just impossible. I can't I can't conduct myself as a human on that. So I'm gonna take that very vicey and digression to be your way of saying yes. I enjoyed the movie the first time out. Oh, very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was tweeting that night that if Josh Brolin didn't win the Oscar, I was never gonna watch it again. Because... <laughs> Right. I mean, I know I know it's a it's a film that I, I think no one understood. So I mean, no one's getting nominated for a performance in that film. But if anyone should have been, it should have been Brolin. And I will I will beat that drum forever and ever and ever. Uh, I do think that man deserves an Oscar. And I think he deserves an Oscar for his performance as Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson in this film. He He's doing doing so much with uh, a role that is on the page was literally designed by PTA to be nothing but a, a kind of monosyllabic foil that he was just meant to be someone that was there to impede Doc in his journey. And that, uh, according to Brolin, Brolin really fought uh, PTA every step of the way to expand that character's role and make him more melancholic, make him sadder, give him weirder shit to do. Let him be blowing a banana whenever you see him. Let him always be trying to consume something and gain something from that consumption. Like that's all Brolin. Well, it's fascinating to me. I don't think the movie works without Brolin being the melancholic heart of it. You know, I mean, he was. 
if he was just an impediment, it wouldn't like he's this heartbroken. This is the guy who gave everything to the straight world. <laughs> yeah, he did exactly. everything he, you're he supposed gave, to do. And he's still miserable. He's still lost the inherent vice of life. He was still unable to ensure against inherent vice. He played by all the rules. He 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 married he married a woman uh, instead of Vincent and Delicato, his partner. He, 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 he had a kid. He he flew the straight and narrow. He beat up uh, hippies and long hairs, but still uh, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot. No movie. No TV. No, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot. Bigfoot. And um, it's great. Like look at his wife. Like you never see her face. Like her head's cut off. Like Charlie yeah. Brown's teacher, which is screaming at him. <laughs> I ask you for one fucking night a week, uh, Christian. Christian uh, and Chastity. His wife's name Christian is Chastity. Christian and Chastity. That marriage going. Um. Uh, oh God. But you're right. But that's something that's so interesting about the film, especially on the pages. But that is something I think that, and we've talked about this previously on the show, that kind of post punch drunk love PTA scripts are almost just, they're almost skeletal in what is not, it based on what is not there. There is so much not on the page in those films uh, or on those, in those scripts. And I think that is because he's trusting himself more and more just to discover, to discover things on the day and discover things in the filmmaking. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that makes him such an interesting and fantastic director is that he does trust his actors. Like uh, by all accounts, according to each of them, uh, they always, in any interview they give uh, during a press cycle for a movie, they, they say he, he, he trusts us to figure this, figure this stuff out. Like he doesn't give us like, you know, here's your mixtape. This is all the stuff that your character would listen to. And here's your 15 page backstory. Like he just says, go figure this out on your, for your, for yourself and bring it back to me. And he trusted them to do that. And he trusted that uh, Brolin would know what to do. And Brolin came back saying, this, this isn't the character. This is, this is just, this is a black and white uh, dragnet guy. And I want this to be a character. I want this to be someone real. And you're right. I think that, um, that's why I think ultimately, even though he's not in this scene, we're going to talk about him. Uh, he, well, he looms over it because he's, we're going to see him in the next scene. He looms over it. But uh, without Brolin making those choices, I think you're right. I think a lot of the movie kind of falls apart in that he is a necessary mirror to everything that Doc does because he, he's amplifying and underlying, underlining, excuse me, everything that doc is going through but won't actively talk about in the movie that that bigfoot is kind of his weird bizarre greek chorus following him around echoing all of his thoughts mm -hmm. plus he just you looks know cool it's with funny the, flat top. the um because i mean it's been since he started the, the rap with anderson he was always you know wanted to be altman and even understudied altman on yeah for yeah. young companion but i feel like inherent vice is when he he went full altman with this one <laughs> not just because there's so many parallels to the long goodbye but it really feels like this is when he let go and Altman would do the thing where he he made the movie that he found you know yeah. things planned out and you know I, I mean I hate when people say he improvised on that day and that's what you know it was just an accident that came, you know the shit was planned out it was directed sure. but he was willing to go wherever the movie wherever it's it was a, happening that day led him and it feels like because if you look at especially like there will be blood and the master those they're great movies but they're very clenched yeah. Even if they're not as, even if they're not as pyrotechnically worked out as Boogie Nights or Magnolia, they're still like, I am making a goddamn masterpiece. <laughs> you can you can feel the effort. Like I mean, they're being those movies are willed into being. Right? Yeah. And, and Inherent Vice feels like he just caught it, and that's where the scene went. 
Exactly. You know, I, I get what you mean. You know, clinched versus say those earlier films that feel, and this is not a criticism because I love them, but they feel diagrammed within an inch of their life. You know that every single moment, every single breath is storyboarded. And, and everything. I know he's my favorite of all of his movies, but I mean, that, that's diagrammed down to the, the last Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love that story of, I, I've mentioned this before as well. I love that story when he uh, signed um, uh, to do, uh, to make Boogie Nights and he literally came in and slapped the script on the table and insisted before signing the contract that we are going to look at every single page and you're going to agree to every single page because we are filming this as is and we're, we're cutting nothing. So you need to know that this is the movie you're getting. And I think, yeah, I think of like Macy on a Magnolia documentary where Macy's smoking a cigarette. He's like, yeah, he ground the lenses himself, <laughs> developed the film in his bathtub. Uh, but I think you, you are right in the Altman connection in that, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, well, it's kind of like his long goodbye because it's, you know, it's a hazy, lazy detective uh, stoner movie. But for me, what feels so Altman-esque about this is, is as you said, yes, it's a film, so it's pre-planned. You know, deals are made months in advance. They know what they're shooting. They know where they're going on the day, for the most part. They know what scene they're going to catch today. Everyone's learned their lines. They've got their sides, everything like that. But there is also very much a feeling of we're just going to let the movie be the movie. Like mm. we're not, we're not going to corral this thing. We're just going to try and catch what we can catch, and hopefully it all works out. And while to some degree, I think that's every film. There, there is something decidedly Altman-esque about that idea of. Look, we'll just let it be its own. Let the movie be the be its own thing. What it, we'll let it be what it is, and we're not going to try and hem it in and direct it. We'll like we'll look at what we have. We'll put it together, and we're not going to try and fix it. We're not going to try and change it. Right? We're going to change it. We're not going to change it in post. It is what it is, and that feels very Altman-esque to me. That it's that um, that ramshackle trust that, and and also kind of David Lynchian in a way, the trust that the movie will become what the movie wants to be. On some level, you have to trust that the movie is going to be what it needs to be and keep your hands off a little bit. And as much as you can, I don't think you can call PTA a hands-off director, but it, 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 it gives the film a hands-off feeling. Like there's, there's, no one, there's no one holding onto the reins of this thing. It's going to go where it wants to go. And that is, I know some people find that incredibly aggravating about Altman and incredibly aggravating about this film, but it's one of the things that I love about this film because... Even someone like me, you can watch it. I've watched it so many goddamn times. It gives it's it still feels unpredictable. There are still moments where a scene will come up. I'll be like, oh shit, I forgot this scene comes after Bigfoot does that thing with the banana. I forgot about this. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. I totally forgot. This is where the movie goes for five minutes after that. And I think that's you that that kind of gets baked into the film when you make it like that, that kind of haphazard Altman-esque way, which I I absolutely adore, at least in Hair Vice. I I when every film is made that way, I mean, I, I like a lot of Altman's work, but that, at a certain point, I do tap out because it's just, you can only trust well, the movie, no, that was the movie thing, so many times. You know. But doing it once well, with well, he advice, didn't make I'm, He didn't make any uh, small mistakes, Altman, you know? <laughs> that's a good way. <laughs> that's right. And, but, and that's why I'm glad that PTA kind of only did it the one time before going, yeah, that's, I got that. I got my yayas out. I got There's one. a weird thing with Anderson, though. I mean, I've been following from one of the, like, I'm one of the people I saw Hard Eight before, before Boogie Nights came out, even. So I have a long history with him. But I've been saying since 1999, like when this kid, I was calling him a kid, I don't know, 10 years, like five years younger than him, I still call him that. He was the kid back then. So, but I was like, when he makes a bad movie, it is going to be the worst fucking movie you have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> because he is flying and i've been saying this for 
over 20 years now. He still hasn't made one, but you know, you get that feeling like he is flying like totally on instruments here. There's no help from anyone. The movies are exactly what he wants them to be. They come out of his own head and he's not answerable to anybody. And when he finally screws up, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I mean, I want, I love his work as you do. I mean, I, I, he's just a filmmaker whom I adore, obviously. I kind of do want to see what that movie would be just out of morbid curiosity, because you can give it this, it wouldn't be boring. There's no, bad movies no, that are bad be because they are boring. And then there are bad movies that are bad because on a, just a genetic level, they just every every single cell seems to be infused which is what the fuckery and those <laughs> movies are kind of interesting and like i'm still you know we, we we have a running joke on the show you know the divide pta's career by coke kid or read dad uh, right. uh directorial modes i kind of really want to see the coked out of his mind crashing right into a goddamn wall pta movie where he just 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 <laughs> loses his goddamn mind and hubris and decides to make like his his four hour uh, hyper Scorsese like gangster epic or something like that. I don't think we're, we're ever going to see that film from him. No, I think he no, is to control the filmmaker. I think he's and I think he's a smart enough guy. Before he kicks a movie off, he knows that he's got something special. Uh, but I would, yeah, you know, like of, two I degrees think. off, Magnolia would have been that though. It just happened that everything worked. <laughs> That's Magnolia was one more indulgence away from not working. <laughs> one indulgence away from that is nothing. such a i saw it again recently for the first time in years i saw it at a, in a, a, a 35 print it was a julianne moore uh, tribute at this theater and she was there for the, the the reception and everything but you're watching that again it's like how is this still working <laughs> here's our first of many digressions that movie should not work on any conceivable level a three-hour misery porn uh uh <laughs> drama in which everyone has been broken by their parents or their lovers or their children um uh, there is a there is a sing-along no one is happy no one is happy except for the final 30 seconds of that goddamn movie does anyone smile with true joy just the first two hours are pitched like that like i mean it's just steamrolling at that level it's uh, it's the equivalent of someone just yelling in your face how bad life gets oh and throw in a lot of cancer uh, child abuse um a single camera never stops moving the score never stops you're just going down these hallways <laughs> a a sing-along uh it's all set in like a three block uh, uh, uh triangle of the valley oh and by the way god shows up and just starts hurling fucking frogs at people to solve all their problems <laughs> and nobody mentions it like <laughs> and it's just kind of like a thing uh, I, I, they're just wiping the frogs off the car like oh well here we go what's amazing is when you describe Magnolia you are describing the Icarus flying too close to the sun hubris movie that is the movie that that, that is the movie that crashes in the wall it should not work and it's a, <laughs> but it's a, it is a testament to that man's goddamn energy and conviction that you watch that movie and it, it, you can talk about it now and we can go okay yeah you know it's 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 a little much or as he says in the the documentary about the making of and fiona apple is pretending to be the movie and he's pretending to be an executive yelling at That's her so adorable. he's like you need to be shorter don't be as long you're just too you're too sad and you're, you're you're too miserable you're just too much fucking too 
And I, I love that line. That's a, because that's such F a great words way. and your cancer and your frog. <laughs> yeah. But that's such a great way to describe Magnolia is you're just too much fucking two. There's just mm. too much twos in there. And yet we, we describe it, we talk about it, and we're like, yeah, that's a terrible movie. That's a terrible idea for a movie. But then when you sit down, you watch it, you, you are in thrall because you're, this is this is amazing. This is if, you know, uh, Ebert called movies empathy machines, and I think they are, but I think that um, they also act as catharsis machines. You, you, you go in you, for two hours, or in this case, three hours, you essentially pay for an emotional catharsis that sometimes you never get in life. And he just basically created a three-hour three-hour catharsis machine. He's like, hey, have you ever been upset at your parents? Have you ever been abused? Have you ever known someone with cancer? Do you have cancer? Have, do you have problems with God? Do you have problems with your career? Do you have problems with love? Do you feel like you aren't worth anything? We've got something here to make you feel better by the end. We've And, and then, hey, and on top of it, we'll sing it to you. If you miss it, we'll sing the message to you. And then God is going to show up. So, hey, God exists. So you got that going for you, too. Here's um, Tom Cruise. To take oh, and, and here's Tom Cruise with a glorious haircut, acting his ass off in a way that maybe you forgot he could do. Um, it's it it is it's it, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's too much. It's too much fucking too. But it's amazing. And that actually brings me to something that I wanted to ask you about. That too much fucking too, which is, uh, you love inherent vice. I love inherent vice. But I'm always I'm always trying to like suss out what is it about this movie that makes it a movie that needs a podcast well not not that it needs it, it's doing just fine on its own but like that you gave me the feeling I, this movie needs to be defended i need to talk about this movie ad nauseum so people can under like really hear about what a masterpiece this this actually is um and so i'm always thinking about why didn't people like what why didn't more people like this movie why didn't they dig it and to talk about that idea of too much fucking too uh, you noted something interesting in your review, that line about maybe there's too much to absorb in a single viewing of this mm -hmm. thing, which I, I I don't know. I feel like there's enough for you to grasp onto that first time to get it, but I think a lot of people disagree. And given how difficult Vice seems to be uh, with at least 80% of the population who saw it and gave it a spin, do you, do you think that that's actually part of the problem, that there is simply too much to absorb uh, and I get, I get that that's pinch on style, that, that, that level of density, that metric density in his work. But uh, do you, as you put it, do you feel that perhaps this story was unadaptable and that it is just too much fucking too for people? Well, my thing is I always don't really give a shit about plot. Like, I mean, if you notice my reviews, I'll spend like a paragraph on the plot at the most. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I honestly don't really follow the plot of movies while I'm watching them very well. Like it's just a series of stuff that happens, but I'm looking at other things. And really quick, like I there's ask, nothing boring more boring to me than people who pick out plot holes. I have to ask something really quick before we go any further because a lot of people have said that they're like, "Well, I, you know, I don't really hang on to the plot." Now, I, I, I mean, I'm a film noir guy. I totally get the thing about how you can't live and die for a plot, especially in a noir film. You know, you look at something like The Big Sleep, that makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Oh. On any on any level, the big, all you need to know is detective, good guy, uh, sisters, never maybe good, that maybe bad. No say, say that again? It's never bothered me that The Big yeah. Sleep makes no sense. But when people say in general, I don't follow the plot, this is just a general question for me. What is it that you what you, that you think is going on in a movie if you're not following the plot? Like, what what do you think is happening? <laughs> you like, know, there's you enough just... <laughs> pointing in the direction. I mean, that's why I don't like so many like current movies 
because they keep repeating the plot to you over and over again. And I'm like, I don't care. I mean, that's like my beef with Christopher Nolan, where he won't stop explaining things to me. And I'm like, just roll oh with it, God. brother. Fine. Just, you know, walk up the walls. I don't care. The exposition. God, the goddamn yeah. exposition. Like, I hate exposition. So I don't, you know, I mean, you can do, you look at the old, the old noirs are the perfect thing. Like, you know, you have the camera pointed in the right direction. You say, ah, I knew it all along. And you're smoking. You're like, <laughs> Okay, I'm not going to think about it any further. I am so divorced from this reality. There's like a podcast around here in Boston these guys do where they just like they pick apart like spoilers and plot and they don't talk about filmmaking. They don't talk about performances. It's just they are so obsessed with plot. And I'm like, how there could no be no duller way to engage with a film. It's sort of like why I, I don't really like a lot of these long serialized television shows to me because they just seem like plot delivery devices. Yeah. There's not a lot of atmosphere. There's not a lot of aesthetics or things I enjoy. So it's, it's a, I, especially the first time I saw it, her advice being so zonked, like I didn't have to try to pretend to even grapple onto anything. You know, it was just like, hey, we, here we go. Here's a bunch of fun scenes. But do you think do you think on some level there is too much fucking to? And I'm not just talking about the plot because the oh yeah no there's way too many scenes of people I, talking about people you don't know who they're talking. About. <laughs> yeah, that, that, they I mean, keep that referencing some... everybody in the movie has a cuckoo banana's name. <laughs> well, that that's pure pinch on that, that that's that's <laughs> but again is that 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 is kind of the question is it that you know is the is is inherent vice in some ways does it have that kind of the Lolita disease and that there is just so goddamn much. In, in Lolita, the novel, that if you adapt it, you're only able to adapt a part of it. Like you know, Kubrick yeah. took it and he ran with the the lyrical wit and the, the, the scathing satire of it. Adrian Lynn, you know, basically took uh, any any level of sex he could, along with some melancholy, and he went and he made that. Yeah, well, he did the tragedy, and yeah. Kubrick did the comedy. Like, but but that th the thing is, when you read the book, the book is all of those things. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's the greatest book ever written. I know that'll get me banned from all the lady bookshelf police on Twitter, but. Well, it is. It is. It's the well. It's the greatest English language book ever written. Um, that said, uh, sometimes I wonder if inherent vice is that for the normies out there. In that, um, there's just not enough of a whole story, and this this sliver of kind of slapstick melancholy romanticism that PTA gives us, is it both not enough of the whole story, but also too much fucking too of. The it's probably that... i mean there's there's probably too much data in the movie <laughs> i mean but i do i love the movie i think you could probably shake about 20 minutes out of it. i know everyone says that like oh the movie could be shorter but there could but does be it less. work but does it work on the same does it hit you on that same level because isn't part of the movie this accretion of emotional yeah. moments and, and and if you you know i think the movie is in a weird way you know we, we talk about it as a movie where it's a movie that the director allowed it to happen i don't want to call it haphazard but at the same time, it almost feels to me like a Jenga tower. If you start pulling anything out that's in there, does what comes after, does it crumble? That is true. I'm talking about someone who's, someone who's watching it, like not on the way we're watching it. Someone who you know saw the trailer and was like, oh, it's the funny detective movie. Because <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I remember I went to see The Big Lebowski on opening day with my little sister. And we were the only people in the theater laughing. <laughs> oh, no. And everybody hated The Big Lebowski for about a year. And now it's the most beloved movie of our time, somehow. You think maybe Vice will get that one day? 
after this. Well, after when the, people uh, thought they had to follow the plot of the Big Lebowski, yeah. they got really angry because it didn't add up to anything. If you look at the initial reviews, people are furious that, which is crazy. It means they, I, I, you know, they've never read a Raymond Chandler story before, but it is pure Chandler. It is pure Chandler. I mean, the the point is never. It's never the plot. The plot is just. It's just a, it's like a pinball machine. It's just to fire our wayward detective forward uh, amidst all these weird lights and, and noise. That was the most perfectly timed movie of my life because I'd just gone on a Chandler kick and I just finished reading all of his books. And I saw The Big Lebowski like a month and a half after that. So I was like, oh, this is, I speak this language. <laughs> <laughs> well, something else uh, that you noted in your excellent review, which I highly recommend everyone go read because it really is, it really, really, with a limited amount of space captures so much of the tone. I've tried writing about this thing and it took me like 8,000 words to get my arms around it. Um, and you're over here like a Hemingway, just like, yeah, here's, here's a couple of graphs. Uh, well, I didn't say you're as good as Hemingway. I'm just saying you kept it short. Um, you're just saying but, I'm drunk. <laughs> but uh, you, you know, there's another great line that you, you had in your review in which you noted everything here is ephemeral emotional beats and plot points slipping in and out of focus, thematically matching a tale in which resolutions remain tantalizingly out of reach. And I think you're right. I think that that structure, and I think that that structure is right for the film because in that way, the structure of the film does really brilliantly reflect and reassert the themes of Inherent Vice as much as the characters with their, in, you know, the back and forth with names we've never heard and characters we've never seen and, and the plot do. Um, but at the same time, that also works on such a subterranean, subconscious level that I wonder, again, because that's what I'm thinking about, if that's sometimes what is ultimately so alienating about the film is if we if we do look at movies, and I think I think most people do look at movies as more of what Magnolia is. It's a catharsis machine that we're going to walk in and it's going to make us feel things and we're going to know why we're feeling those things. And it's going to be, those things are going to be readily identified. This is how we feel about cancer. This is how we feel about child abuse. So all the, the myriad of horrible things that, that rear their heads right. in Magnolia. Whereas so much of Inherent Vice, I do think for the longest time you're going through the movie going, well, what is this? Like, it, can you can you and i i, and I know i i know what my answer is and I, I i think i gave a very weepy version of it last week but i think for a lot of people can you have a catharsis in a movie whose structure themes and character are all kind of about the denial of any kind of catharsis or emotional release i mean that's ultimately i think what hurts the movie for people is as you said everything here is ephemeral and the, even the movie itself is designed to be something that you can't really reach something that you can't touch no it's true i mean it just i mean i watched it again this afternoon and i can't tell you what order anything happens <laughs> <laughs> right right i mean we I mean, that that's what that's, that's the thing that's the thing that i think I think someone else, I don't think you would, and I know I wouldn't, I think someone else would issue that as a, as a kind of criticism to the movie. The, the, but like, I actually feel like that's kind of the magic of the movie is it does play like a, like a high. It plays like an, a week that you spent with your friends really, really high. And you sit back going, no, wait, who said what to me? Like, 
Bigfoot said something. The weird thing I was especially fixated on today is the stuff I laugh hardest, there's no way to explain to people why it's funny. <laughs> the funniest things in this movie are, the first of all, like the denial of establishing shots is great because you oh just start God. like close up on somebody's yeah. face and you don't see where they are or who they're in relation to until you're about two minutes into the scene. And that's the and, gag. And that's like, that's an, and it plays as a gag. Like, oh, this is where it is. <laughs> like, well, you think they're in Bigfoot's office. You think he's this hotshot detective. And just look, and they're in the middle of this giant area. There's like a thousand desks and all these other cops. It's like, oh, he's not a big shot cop of an office. He's just a loser. <laughs> he's talking to him at a desk. And <laughs> that constantly recontextualizing what you're looking at. He, he waits so long. It's really exquisite how, how, how funny it is to just... Like, you know, the, the lying on the ground with the corpse, and you know, you're not going to see the squad of police cars until about 40 seconds after you would in a normal film. <laughs> but that's that's actually kind of, I think, in keeping since we're talking so much about how kind of structure and design meet theme and character. That I I can't think of another film besides maybe Taxi Driver, uh, where the director works so hard to put you in the point of view of the main character and make yeah. you feel like the main character uh, to the point that I think you you are meant to feel as confused as you are because Doc is confused. Doc has no fucking clue what is going on. We actually, in the end, probably have a slightly better idea of all of the machinations of the plot than Doc does, but we're meant to feel like Doc. We're meant to be lost. And in, not, not, not just lost, but um, those those scenes that you're talking about, it's, it's almost like where Doc, where he's walked into a room not really paying attention, and it's only like a half minute to a minute in that he goes, oh shit, there's a bunch of cops standing all around me and like a dead body next to me. It makes me think of, there was that great line, I think Ebert had it when he was writing about um, the cinema magic of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, where he talks about how there are shots that make no fucking sense in that movie. Like say, uh, in the Ecstasy of Gold sequence, when... Um, uh, Tuco and Blondie are facing off, and then all of a sudden, a, a, a shovel is thrown at them, right? <laughs> and and you and you the colonel's ne- and the colonel just kind of like walks up to him. This is a guy they would have seen walking up to them for miles and miles and miles before he wrote, because this is totally flat graveyard, circular terrain. They would have seen him approaching and been waiting for him for like forty-five minutes, but the film. Uh, as he notes, he's like, this character doesn't exist until he literally enters the frame of the picture. Only then is he allowed to exist, and only then can the characters see him, because only then does the film acknowledge him. And I think that there is actually, probably unintentionally, something like that going on in Inherent Vice, where until the camera shows us, Doc has no fucking clue that it's there. As he says, thinking comes later. Yeah. <laughs> what else? What else? Thinking comes later. Uh, with maybe the exception of Clancy Sherlock, where he, he seems to get an idea that she's in the room before we see her. For the most part, everything is kind of a surprise to Doc visually. Uh, every, even as you said, it's, you almost get the sense when he's in at Bigfoot's desk. It's, it gives, it takes him a minute to go. Oh wow! Look, look at all the other people sitting around here. Oh, and there's my lawyer Sanch. There's, there's my, there, there. It's like everything is slow. What happens in the FBI office too? You don't see like there's all the other agents in the room. You don't see. And 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 
interestingly enough, with Joaquin's perf- uh, performance, he does almost seem constantly surprised when we get these bigger cuts, when we get these 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 more <laughs> establishing shots. He's kind of looking around at them as we are trying to take it in. Like, watch when he goes to Mickey Wolfman's house and how there are people walking around that he should be seeing, but he doesn't actively see them until that we see them and they're in the frame. Uh, uh, it, it, it is kind of amazing. And, you know, I, had, I hadn't thought of that until you had mentioned it, but it, it does have that weird the good the bad and the ugly design where it it has to exist in the frame we have to see it for doc to be able to see it and vice versa and again and the whole movie structure like she shows up in his house that's what starts the whole movie <laughs> exactly but, but again again it it does beg that question though is that something that makes a digestible film for like 80 to 90 percent of the people who go see it who who are looking for that catharsis machine and instead are given a movie that says oh by the way did you know there's no catharsis or resolution to life things just kind of go on and then you die and then they end isn't that interesting like it is kind of a movie that said you know it isn't it is not a movie that says it doesn't end with a wonderful sing-along from amy mann you know it doesn't give us you know, God only knows as we walk around the family's house, uh, a porn house. I always think of this story. My, my, my friend, Wesley Morris, the great, the brilliant film critic, he told he was at a film festival and he was sitting near a bunch of executives. And I believe we haven't quite played, he won't tell name names, but I think it was around the time of Inherent Vice. And there was a studio executive saying, how did I get stuck with the Paul Thomas Anderson movie this time? And the other studio people said, it's your turn. I've heard this. I've heard this. I've heard this. I saw this as like a blind item somewhere. I remember <laughs> reading that. <laughs> like the, these movies don't make money. They're not for anybody, but it's like your duty as a studio representative. Like, well, we've got to make one. We've got them here. <laughs> Imagine being the exec that has to catch inherent vice. Like you're hoping at least you're going to catch it. There will be blood. He's going to be a pain in the ass, but we're going to get an Oscar campaign out of this. Okay, cool cool they kind of suffocated and her advice in the crypt though they knew like, there was no throwing good money after bad there no. imagine being told though by the way yeah you're getting the the infant terrible uh to make the movie oh by the way it's an adaptation of an author that 70 percent of anyone who tries stops out of about page 30 with any of his works no because uh, you can see the first page whereas joaquin and reese are together again from walk the line and you got brolin <laughs> hey this could work this could work this could work and then you actually read like page one and it's all about how doc is getting a there's a close-up this is actually in the script there's a close-up of doc getting a boner uh as shasta is talking to him and there's just a close-up on his lap <laughs> as he gets an erection um like that's what like that's what that exec was looking at. Like he turned the page, thinking, okay, hey, we, you know, maybe we got something here. This could, and then no, it's it's it's, it's Doc does everything he can do to hide his boner. As uh, Shasta I do like the idea. This is the last message of patronage, though. Like, well, it's your turn to get the PTA movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that poor bastard. <laughs> so as I was saying, yeah. Now, there's there's plenty of other things to talk about, but yeah, I, I feel like because today's scene is so odd and ephemeral that it, it is it's a good stopping moment to wonder like is that what just throws everybody off and maybe ultimately that's what it is is that this is as much as i feel like someone like you and i who maybe are just we're designed to be on this movie's wavelength we can sit in a theater and watch this and go oh yeah it's about being sad it's about things ending it's about things coming to an end 
and the movie's just taking kind of a. We're the two guys that wouldn't stop writing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? <laughs> exactly. So we're 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 kind of tuned into the idea of three-hour movies about um, middle-aged guys reckoning with things ending, but um, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and I think maybe ultimately that's it. Just the the fact that the movie, which I I think is brilliantly fucking brilliant you know we, we we talked earlier about how it's a little haphazard and the movie has to be allowed to become itself there is also a genius to its construction in how doggedly ephemeral it is in that and how by design it is set up to reflect its theme of there are some things in life you just can't get your arms around you just can't hold whether it's a person, whether it's a love, whether it's a country, whether it's a democracy, whether it's a family, there are some things that are just kind of achingly out of reach. They're, they're, they're close enough to be seen, but cannot be touched. Or if you do reach out to touch them, they, they, they break up like smoke. And I oh, think those beautiful flashbacks, to, you know, the Neil Young song and the running, and then you, and then, and then what you, what see, you that, see that lot is turned into the golden fang. It's oh. ugly. <laughs> I assume it's a CGI construction. <laughs> it is. I mean, yeah, real, really quick. Uh, and we didn't really get into that on Ryan's episode, but um, uh, what an amazing CGI shot that is. I think most of us <laughs> with the most mega, mega budget film in the world, you watch something like Avengers Endgame that was, you know, more money than God itself was, was thrown at that film. But every time I watched Thanos, I'd be like, God, they just look so fucking fake. Yeah, it looks like shit. Yeah, it just looks like this. This looks so bad. Speaking of a Brolin movie, like this was like if the Capitol Records building was a tooth. <laughs> but the, the, the credit where it's due to the VFX team of Inherent Vice, that building. Never once do I question its reality. I know that it's fake because I've I've done just a sickening amount of research about this film, so I know that it's fake. I've and like Jake. Also, Gilmore. no one would build something that big. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. I mean, I, I should probably. I don't think it's like PTA's uh, location scout just found this one random golden triangle of a building out in Lancaster. <laughs> but like Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac, I, I am enough of a nut. I've been there. I've walked it door to door. I've seen the lot, so I can I can attest that there is no building there. <laughs> um, but that said, that is a gorgeous bit of uh, uh, CGI fakery. It, it does look real. It has depth. It has it has a heft. You feel like you can touch that building. And yeah, that's that's kind of the film, and also very 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 2020 that scene to me of just a has it, a scene in which we're all sitting around thinking about how thing how good things used to be, and then you see this big fucking golden orange monstrosity in front of you, uh, twisting towards the sky, <laughs> um, souring the American fate, or maybe the American fate was already sour, and this is just the apex of it. Is this 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 fucking golden monstrosity? Got Martin Short as Henry Gibson inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes, as Henry Gibson. Oh, thank you for bringing his name into it. Yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> well, there's so many. It's funny because watching it again, it's like there, there's so many long goodbye parallels. But it's, I mean, I think, you know, Anderson wants to be Altman, but Anderson's also a lot sweeter of a guy than Altman, or at least he is now. But, Alden was in 73, especially because you got Doc is Philip Marlowe, but he's not a back talker. He's actually just like a sweet, regular dude. Where yeah. Like Gold's yeah. Marlowe is the most shit talking prick. Yeah. <laughs> like he'll do the blackface to the cops. <laughs> and then you've got um, Terry Lennox, Owen Wilson, obviously cast because he looks like uh, Jim Booten. He does. Wow, you character, but he didn't kill his wife. 
he actually loves his wife, and he's gonna bring him home to her. Wow. Well, I, I'm doing the I'm doing the I'm doing the Owen Wilson thing again, like I did last. Wow. Wow. But yeah, you're you're right. That that wow. What a good point that is. Now. And I'm then you've got the crazy, you know, the whole like sentencing the guy to the booby hatch plot, and then yeah. you've got instead of Henry Gibson, you've got Martin Short in this incredible Austin Powers suit. One of the greatest. Blowing greatest costuming decisions in the history of cinema there's a reason why taking liberties with martin donovan's daughter (laughs) original broadway cast albums and the lamps the wallpaper and the lamps now can i tell you that this is a funny generational divide because i saw this movie for the first time with people like 15 years over than me and the since we're middle-aged guys we know this the the reigning martin donovan king of art house misanthropy was a brief window (laughs) If you weren't a bit, if you weren't a video store clerk, I don't think you understand how much everyone from a certain era wanted to smoke cigarettes like Martin Donovan. I don't think I'd seen him any in anything since the Nolan Insomnia. I'm sure he's probably on television shows. I don't oh, wow. watch. Yeah. No, you. I, I think he's on TV now. Our man's our man's moved to TV, as so many of them do. Yeah. Well, so when you're finally here's Crocker Fenway. I lost my shit when it was him. <laughs> isn't isn't he like the perfect avatar of kind of in, in no insult to to our friend Donovan, but the fact that the 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 face of utter evil and American ruination is just this kind of banal, well 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 dressed, well combed white dude from Palos. Right, but, it, but it, it's, it's so, it was all set up from the Hartley movies. Like, yeah, no, I know. I know 20 yeah. years later, like, 25 years later. You know? This avatar of how Hartley movies stroll in as the face of all American evil. Um, that said, well, that said, we've been, we've been talking about ephemera and the ephemeral nature of this movie with things being just achingly out of reach in the pot smog. We now come to what is one of Inherent Vice's most ephemeral moments, which is really saying something. Your scene today, <laughs> it's really saying something. This is one of the more, well, what the, what, what the fuck was that? Uh, moments of the I was whole. actually quite honored you chose me for this one. <laughs> I, I felt like this was the one, I felt like your writing on Inherent Vice, and we're going to talk about where people can read that at the end of the episode. Um, I felt like your writing on Inherent Vice most aligned with this sequence that idea of as you said i'm gonna quote you again i'm just gonna keep doing that um that line you wrote everything here is ephemeral emotional beats and plot points slipping in and out of focus thematically matching a tale in which resolutions remain tantalizingly out of reach and that to me is a lot of this sequence is just this beautiful ephemera things slipping in and out of focus you know that something is there and something has been clearly placed there for you as a viewer but it also feels at the same time so out of reach despite being right there. And I think that your writing really kind of captures the nature of that inherent vice. And I don't think that that is ever more underlined in bright green neon than in this sequence. So what do you say? You want to dive in? You want to watch the scene? Let's, 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 let's watch it. Yet there is no voiding time, the sea of time. The sea of memory and forgetfulness. The years of promise gone and unrecoverable. Of the land almost allowed to claim its better destiny 
only to have that claim jumped by evildoers known all too well and taken instead and held hostage to the future we must live in now forever. So who got her? Department of Justice. So like, uh, justice was served? That's exactly right, Doc. That's exactly right. May we trust this blessed ship is bound for some better shore, risen and redeemed, where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. So what's so interesting to me about this scene is that it does play as something ephemeral, like you wrote. It's this strange minute-long tone poem at the end of the movie, and it, it it's kicking off this prolonged epilogue that'll carry us to the credits that feels like a, a side exhalation. But I also think for all that, for all of its ephemeral nature, it's a very necessary moment because while it is so obscure and odd and sidelong, it's also, I think, a necessary moment for the film to catch its breath after the daunting density of everything that has come before now, um, where we finally reached the emotional and plot climax of the film, which also happens to be a surprise, you know, when you're watching the movie and uh, Coy Harlingen is delivered back into the arms of his family, there is that moment of, oh, that's, so that's what the fuck this movie was? That's, that's, that's what this was. It, so it wasn't about, it wasn't about uh, Wolfman and it wasn't even about Shasta, that, that, that we were as wrong as Doc, because Doc was walking around thinking, wow, it's not about Shasta. Suddenly um, the music gets really nice. It's like the Johnny <laughs> Coe's music. It's that's like, what, the, the, Johnny Greenwood doing a song <laughs> and saying, hey, everybody, no, 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 it's right here. It's a, listen to Amethyst. This is the scene. But I think it's a necessary moment for the film uh, to allow its viewers to kind of catch their breath. Uh, after everything that's come before now, now that the, like I said, the, the quote unquote plot has been more or less resolved with the exception of the, by definition, unresolvable love affair of Doc and Shasta. But, 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 in true inherent vice fashion, as, as you noted about how structure matches theme, I also think that this sequence very sneakily sums up everything. This scene tells us everything that this film is. And I, and I know that we just heard it, but I'm going to say it again. Are, we literally have a narrator chime in and say, there is no avoiding time, the sea of time, the sea of memory and forgetfulness, the years of promise, gone and unrecoverable, of the land almost allowed to claim its better destiny, only to have that claim jumped by evildoers known all too well and taken instead and held hostage to the future we must now live in forever. May we trust that this blessed ship is bound for some better shore, risen and redeemed, where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. It's kind of, I think, a tribute to the, the obscure uh, construction of this film that we literally have a narrator show up Two scenes before the end ago, by the way, this is everything you just watched and why. And people still walk away going, what the hell was that thing about? But well, even more like, so in the dialogue exchange, because you have like Joaquin like asking, like, so justice was done. And then, you know, you have our attorney, Dr. Gonzo, just fluffing his quote, the most sarcastic prick imaginable. <laughs> yes, justice was done. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the man well, who introduced moral ambiguity to the Jedi universe. You know, <laughs> <Spinicio>. <laughs> oh, boy. Nice connection there. Nice connection. 
uh, with an increment vice guest, clever. But that I, 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 actually, I think that this scene is one of the most fucking fascinating scenes. God, you got me cursing a lot in this episode. One of the most fucking fascinating. People scenes. do that around me. It's fine. <laughs> it is. It is one of the most fucking fascinating scenes in the film. It's only a minute long. It's split in half. Where the first half is just a series of shots of of of, of establishing shots. The establishing shots we haven't gotten throughout the film we get here well, it also looked like the smush telephoto of them walking along the cliff yeah it's, 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 what an odd choice too that eldrick made with that for, um but uh you don't it, use telephoto lens on a cliff like that like unless you're really trying to unless you're unless you're unless the act itself to quote uh morgan freeman at seven unless the act itself has a purpose uh <laughs> and i'm i'm assuming there has to be one i still don't know what it is because uh Ellswit will not talk about this film anymore um he won't he, he he straight up won't um Elizabeth, if you're if you're listening we're open we're open for a bonus episode come back talk to us that had to be a shit guy but i wouldn't um i mean, I mean i'm not i'm not thinking i'm telling things at a school i mean we were in contact with him and for a minute there he wanted to talk but then he was just like i can't i can't talk about that man just i'm done with it i'm done um but hey when you know, he finally became his own dp i was like okay that's you know something's going yeah yeah when, when you're making a dp less film with no credit and you're just working with the same crew minus the dp there's, there's maybe some bad blood there um well, it's just uh, who wants to work for this guy you know i understand like he has his own thing like just let him go with it like, i will say if you are a cinematographer you you, you might get a little bored uh, you know, I always use this line shooting in like, you know, the, the, the cream white walls of, of, a of, a like Pasadena breakfast nook, uh, you know, which half the movie is kind of that. Uh, and it's not a complaint, but I mean, it, it does kind of lack the big American vistas of something like, uh, there will be blood. Um, or that's what's week. interesting too. I want to talk about like, there's been this like shift in Anderson's work and I've talked, it became a big thing when 1917 got all bizarrely overrated for the look mom directing tropes and all the guys who used to do all the, the awesome steady cam shots like you just watch like scorsese and anderson movies nobody does those anymore like spielberg doesn't do them scorsese doesn't do them anderson doesn't do them they're all kind of just doing shot reverse shots now well it, it does seem like a weird thing where it's almost this well i don't have i don't have anything to prove anymore i don't have to be a hot shot because i remember if you recall like one of the you know, we've had a we've had a few guests on uh, who from uh, cigarettes and red vines, the definitive PTA uh, online resource, and I remember one of the biggest news breaks they had because I'm a nerd and I was following this shit. One of the biggest news breaks they had when Inherent Vice was filming was a production shot of this insane length of Steadicam track that was laid down across the side of a road. And at the time, I was like, this is the longest Steadicam shot that PTA has ever had. Oh, my God, what is this going to be? And it turns out it's just the shot of him driving up to Channel View Estates, which is a lovely shot. <laughs> but even even right, even, but... even even a, a Steadicam shot like that is so understated in this film. I mean, we're not exactly Kubrick roaming the halls of the Overlook here. Uh, and there is something to, to say about that, though, that I think it, it comes with a I think we've definitely seen it as Coke Kid has matured into Weed Dad. Um, there's that that maturation uh, and like i don't have to do the whip pans anymore i yeah. don't have to carry that same energy although there are some like the one the one steady cam shot and the irishman was the best joke in the film <laughs> yeah. it was going down the hallway of the senior center yeah but uh <laughs> oh god now i'm gonna get depressed uh um 
that goddamn movie. Um, but there there are some flourishes in this film. I mean, um, it, it, in Dr. Rudy Blatnoy DDS's office, obviously, and in, uh, and in the car, right? Yeah, when they're on cocaine, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, once, once Coke Kid comes back. Um, but coming back to what I was saying, there is something so definitive about our scene today. There is something so for lack of a better term, inherent vicey about this scene and that it is a scene that gives us, it's a scene that gives us a passage from a narrator speaking directly to us, the audience, telling us everything that the movie is about. And I think for a lot of people, the first time through, you don't even catch this. You, you just miss it. And then the second half of the scene is what, what should be this incredibly humongous plot point. And in fact, in the book is its own chapter. But the scene that should be a massive plot point, the golden thing, the vessel that has been ferrying all this Indo-Chinese heroin to America and ruining it. it, it this is kind of like the Death Star. It, imagine a Star Wars film in which the Death Star is blown up in like a very tw brief 20-second aside while in, in way in the background while han and chewie are just kind of walking around up front bitching about the millennium falcon not not working um star wars movie the, i'd like to see is ryan the, listening <laughs> the the message of the movie is buried in the first half of the scene and then the second half of the scene where we have this major major moment that should be like oh my god they beat the bang it, it's just kind of like pta just kind of throws it in there almost like a sliver no no it is the message in the movie because they don't even know what agency got the boat Exactly. And, and they think it's the DOJ. Um, but that's 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 kind of the point. And that's kind of what makes this, this film magical to me and probably infuriating to so many other people is that that idea of, yeah, it, it's never about the thing you think it's about. And even if it is that resolution, you're not going to get it. The movie's not right. going to give you the resolution. As I said in the last episode, you're going to be lucky if you get if you get Coy Harlingen home. That's what you're going to get. The peace that you, the peace and the happiness that hearing the song Amethyst play in the background as he is delivered into the family Harlingen, like Doc, that's the only catharsis. He gets an Amex card. Come on. He, he does. He does. Um, although there's no, there's no, there's no indication yet that Doc actually gives him, he doesn't give him the message at least when they say, you know, welcome back to the fold. Doc doesn't do that. He just says, you saved your own life. Now you're going to live it. Um, but like Doc, the, the movie says to us, you're, you're going to, you got to be happy with just getting Koi home. That's what this was all about. It wasn't about Shasta. You're not going to get that. You're not going to. You're not going to get the thing. And even even if the boat gets taken down, we're only going to give you like this little thirty second blip of it in kind of a montage, and we're going to move on to uh, Bigfoot beating the shit out of your front door again. And to me, this this little sixty second blip of a scene is kind of it's this two and a half hour movie in in literally one minute. Well, yeah, because the movie was already over before it started. <laughs> <laughs> already over before it started it's like you're kind of been like jerking around for two and a half hours thinking you know you can fix things or change things but now in the end like the bad guys won it's all in the hands of crocker fenway and you know you get you get your little moments <laughs> but, but those things don't mean anything if you don't take yeah. two and a half hours to to try and try <laughs> and try again and only learn that the one thing you can do is that one small thing. Maybe, you know, you're not going to bring down Nixon or the thing. And, you, you know, even if you catch the boat, you're not even going to be sure who gets it in the end. It's going to be like the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, we, we don't, we have no idea where it's going to go. And if it goes, if it goes to the DOJ, aren't, haven't we kind of, 
aren't we under the impression at this point that all wings of justice of American justice are an arm of the golden fang itself? Really, we've got top men the, working on it. Yeah, it we got we have top kept picking their noses. Top <laughs> men, and and yeah, we've haven't we learned at this point that eventually this this boat will be requisitioned back to the CIA, who are running those secret drug runs from uh, Vietnam back to America, and so what? Nothing's been gained here. No, things have only been lost. And we get all of that. We get all of that in this little sequence. And I am, and I know that I'm way too emotionally attached to this film, just the way Sancho Smiley oh, is too emotionally right. attached to a boat. But it kind of breaks my heart, this sequence, because it is, it is everything. That's my speech. That's my speech, Sean. I, I just had to get that out there. This, this sequence does break my heart, as many do in this film. No, and it, you know, to keep coming back to, you know, Benicio being the, the lawyer, but I mean, this movie is the bit in Fear and Loathing you know, the soul of the book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, when Hunter's not being a shit for, you know, one chapter in the entire <laughs> 200 pages, where he talks about, like, you know, the moment when everything seemed possible, and then the wave broke, and it rolled back. God. I, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the film, as some people are, but that scene did capture the entire mood of, of that chapter from the book. Uh, not that I, not that I lived in the sixties, but as, as, yeah. as anyone who's living, who was born, uh, you know, in the eighties, uh, you, you live basically in this boomer America where all of, all of these things are, are so eulogized and obsessed over and to the point where you almost feel like you lived them. And that sequence in the film does so. Oh, they've been shoved down your throat the whole time. And yeah, it's I grew up on the wonder. Artists years. like Thompson that are like, or stone or like, well, by the way, it was all a big failure. <laughs> Actually, what's interesting to me about this scene is it does match something from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but not the film that also stars Benito del Toro as a stoner lawyer. But it's a scene that's only in the book and not in the film. And it's it's the thing that kind of breaks the movie for me because it is the point. It's the point of the book, um, much in the way I feel like this sequence is one of the points of Inherent Vice. There's a scene in the book, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where uh, uh, Raul Duke... AKA Hunter Thompson and uh, his attorney, Dr. Dr. Gonzo, AKA Oscar Acosta, they're driving around Vegas and uh, Raul Duke finally says, Hey, we're here to find the American dream. We've got to find the American dream. It's what we paid here. We, we, aren't we professionals? And so they go driving around and they keep pulling over asking people on the Vegas strip, have you heard of the American dream? And people, people keep saying, yeah, I think it's down over here. You take a, take a left over this and a right over on that. And, and, and then they find, a, they find this building they find this building that was that's been burnt to a crisp it's just been totally burned down to its uh cinder block foundations and i think they go to like a low, uh, a nearby like um drive through window or something like that to say hey you know what happened to this this building over here called the american dream and the gal behind the window says oh yeah that burned down like about 4 years ago in 1967 and you, you a little ham-handed but the idea of like no you know, it's that, great that, for a gone. book it would have been yeah. terrible for a movie like, oh well like like any Johnny like like Lee. anything in that film was or anything in that book was great for a movie but gilliam <laughs> and that that kind of feels like that moment that moment i'd where, rather just watch like benicio puking on the tourist sure sure i mean that's fun too i do like big lizards um but that moment of someone just looking at the character and saying oh no you didn't hear the american dream it burned down four years ago it's gone um in that case it was a building in this case we see you know it's a ship you know that ship uh, who as sort of said you know may uh 
may may we trust that this blessed ship is bound for some better shore risen and redeemed where the american fate mercifully failed to transpire and who do we see taking this ship back in the avatars and the arbiters of that american fate it's the, the doj justice was served um and there's something so that's not all you still got you got you got reese witherspoon working there the justice department's not all bad sure but as you even pointed out in your review doc is kind of horrified at, the, at even her level of corruption uh when she tells him to grow up when he's like well you're just like grow up. that's the greatest you're just cracking open people's jackets whenever you feel like it like he's kind of horrified by that um and that's that really uh reese witherspoon's so underrated in this movie i mean she just <laughs> you know she knocks him out of the fucking park man <laughs> i would be there's a few characters in this film who really deserve spinoffs i i i don't want to say brolin because i feel like brolin's one of those characters where he's too much of bigfoot would be almost too yeah, much uh, absolutely right a a penny kimball assistant da tv show <laughs> a two like a two or three series tv show just the the wacky misadventures of penny kimball I'd watch that angry establishment lady who loves to have sex with dirty hippies. <laughs> and then, you know, like every, like once a season, Joaquin shows up, like he's, cause he's been out of town and like he has to show up and wait, wait three minutes while the audience applauds and everything like 90 style before he jumps into the dialogue. Yeah, we definitely like there's gold there. There's gold there. If anybody's listening. Um, she does nothing but these shitty TV shows now. We should get her into this one. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit we've been talking about so much of the second half of the scene where there's actual any kind of actual machinations of plot which is doc and sanch watching uh the golden fang finally get caught and hauled in which again in the book massive chapter and in the film it, it almost feels like a deleted scene but one of those deleted scene montages that pta puts together in his bonus yeah. uh the the supplementary packages uh but again to to reiterate that idea that this is about endings and it's about it's about things ending not as well as we would have hoped and ending worse off than they began. I think a lot about the, the more abstract first half of this sequence. And we find, as we, we finally get those establishing shots that, that, mo that the film mostly denies us. But what do we get? We get, once again, we get the opening, we get the, the view from the opening of the film, the shot of Gordita Beach as seen from Doc's bungalow between those two right. houses on the strand but it's a it's a wider shot now it's not it's not as close up and in that wider view just as you as you were saying the the more doc looks the wider the the wider the camera goes so the more we can see um what do we see this time there's no kids running and playing now like they were in the opening scene of that when we saw that same shot there's no kids now there's no one at all it's empty and kind of barren um and then what do we see next we go down to the sea uh, the sea where uh he imagined Shasta in a boat uh, when he was looking at his looking out the window of of his bungalow with his with his binoculars looking for her. It's the sea where he spied uh, the golden fang with Sanch that first time. It's the sea where uh, Shasta, upon her return, uh, walked with him. Uh, but what do we see now? It's instead of uh, the ocean, the Pacific being so sun splashed and bright, like like it has been every single time in this movie. It's it's in this odd kind of cold pastel twilight. The kids are no longer there. The sun is set. It's getting cold. It's getting dark. And for a beat that I feel really feel like is on some level just supposed to be a breather before we 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 carry ourselves to the credits. It, maybe I'm giving it too much credit. It's kind of unfathomably dark. 
it's 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 showing us that everything is coming to an end. The, the oh, it's awful. There's a reason it repeats the beginning of the movie where there was yeah. all the promise where you're like sitting down and you're like, I'm watching the new PT Anderson movie. <laughs> On and everyone said it's going to be like airplane <laughs> <laughs> and, and instead pta go back to when you go back to the same shot at the end of the movie that you had at the beginning you know, yeah it's, it's, it's trouble like. it's trouble and, and and but again just the i i never find this to be a cold film except for this is one of the few moments where i'm like this is just fucking cold this is some cold ass shit uh to be rather gauche about it and i'm gonna keep saying it like a mantra and i know i've made my point but it's just the kids are gone the sun has gone down like it's it's as cold as just about anything i think you'll see in the pta uber if you really think about it he he's saying no this is all ending badly for all of them like the hope this is, is all gone. true though i mean he was doing it as far as like boogie nights or you know, you know returning to the same physical spaces as before and but even in boogie nights there, there is a sense of like melancholic redemption well i guess i mean you know you could argue that no there's a little picture paradise. of William Mason on the wall where he blew his head off <laughs> so i mean hey you know there, there's some happiness there but um yeah there's this there's something so he knows how to use the spaces he does he does and 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 i just i find this to be particularly particularly haunting and and be and it haunting also because it it carries with it as much as i said as much as I said that this scene carries with it so many of the answers, it, it because it is so strange and oblique, it does also feel like a big question mark. And um, can I get really, can I get even extra pretentious on you for a minute? Can I get, you, you cool with this? You ready for this? <laughs> Why not? It's, it's uh, I mean, uh, we're going to talk about David Mamet for a second. And I'm going to throw a, a, a way too long David Mamet quote at you because I think it's, it's pertinent to what, the mood is in the sequence and the mood that is being set as we approach the ending and how much of inherent vice's endings i think create beginnings and wonder about that uh mammoth was talking recently how when he was young uh and uh, what got him into crime fiction and he said reading crime fiction is uh, what i did instead of going to school and one of the genres i read was the california novelists dashiell hammett and joseph hansen and raymond chandler who was wonderful and then ross mcdonald there was always something weird about the california story as opposed to the new york story which was always about some guy trying to find himself and the chicago noir is all about some guy trying to get ahead in the world but the story of california seems to be the story of people who are lost and have no identity and they find out what they thought they were wasn't really who they were and their father wasn't their father and their uncles were stopping them and impersonating somebody else and the the noir films all all the guys getting out after world war ii with nothing to do and no money except an idea and the pacific coast highway all california noirs they're all the story of, well, what happens now? And that to me is the, the tone of this scene, which is again, part of the insanity of inherent vice is to have a scene that says, well, what happens now? Two scenes out from your final credits. But that, that's what this is to well, me. It's, it's, true. it's a and filmmaker saying what happens now. Doc is such a break from the typical California detective is he's not a shit talker. He's not Philip Marlowe. <laughs> He's not the dude. Like he's not. He doesn't sass back at anybody. And then when he has the chance, you know, to fucking walk off with all the money he wants, 
He just wants to help out this poor junkie sax player. <laughs> well, give him a little credit. He does give a little back sass to Crocker Fenway, but even then, it, he stops halfway. It's a through. very like, little bit. He, well, he stops mid-sentence. He's like, I'm telling you, my man. Yeah. Like, he doesn't even <laughs> think. He just, he just lets that hang there. No, I mean, um, compared to, like, the way, like, you know, what, what oh, sure. said, or even, like, you know, Jeff Bridges would have put the shades on and been like, I still <laughs> jerk off manually, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you've always had these guys who operate outside of society and they're all like rebels and pricks and stuff. And the the, the weird thing about Inherent Vice is like, no, Doc's like, he's just, he's a nice guy. He's, he's looking out for people. He is. But in keeping with that, though, I, I got to stick with that mammoth idea. I think that's that's really in keeping with this scene, that idea of, well, what what, what happens now? Like what? Yeah. What can? What, what? What happens now? And that the fact that the film is posing that question, when we have like ten minutes left to go on our fi- our feature here, is again part of the perversity of Heron Vice. Is like the last shot does not leave me thinking things are going to work out well for this character. Oh, don't say that! Don't say that. <laughs> a particular shaft of lighting, and uh, he smiles. My favorite song from Elvis's Memphis record. I know it's a different recording, but he smiles. Think. He smiles at the light, Sean. He smiles. That's got to mean something, right? It's got to mean something, right? Couldn't it? Couldn't it? I don't think this is positive. Jesus. Positive. Look, we're talking about endings here. We got. We got. We got to be happy. We have to have some hope. We have to have that. We have to have that kind of that. Don't we have to have that little PTA bit of hope that like you're driving? Hell, give it this. Give it this. In the book, he's driving away by himself. Yeah, he's driving away by himself. This time around, he's got Shasta Faye. And while this, this is he really? Happen, I mean, there's an. I know there's like you know, it's like a stupid thing you can make arguments the whole time out of who exists or not. But there, there's a whole theory that she only physically exists in the first scene. And then never comes back for the rest of the movie. I mean, there's uh, there's an argument to be made for that, sure. And we've we've kind of touched on that. I I used to wonder about that in terms of the sex scene, uh, just given its oddness, the the tonal yeah. oddness. I now actually think that that is indeed Shasta in that sequence. That said, no, I do too. I mean, there. I mean, I know these. It's like it's my well, least no. discussion to have about movies. Well, oh yeah, what it's, actually happened? I'm going to go with what I saw. Well, that said, the, the film does go out of its way to make it clear that we can't be a thousand percent sure that any yes, person around Doc is actually there at any given time. But at the same time, at the same time, you got to wonder if Doc was going to hallucinate Shasta, wouldn't he hallucinate a happier version of Shasta? <laughs> he was going to imagine Shasta? Wouldn't oh, yeah, he I mean, I'm not giving any credence to this. Theory, come on, but... come on. Let's 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 let let the man have a happy. He, and he brought the, the door open enough for us to go. I don't know about any of this. Of course, it does end with Chuck Jack. Yeah, Chuck Jackson singing uh, "Any Day Now," which is basically a man, a man knowing that uh, his woman's going to leave him and break his heart. He's he's just counting down the days again, and maybe that's where things end. Maybe that's maybe that's 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 where this ends. As we as we've said, you know, a big, a big theme of the film is that as you wrote everything everything is always going to remain tantalizingly out of reach for us for these characters in life um and boy god we're we started this thing with a downer and i get the feeling we're going to start kind of ending on a down note aren't we <laughs> we're, we're going to go sad again aren't we uh i don't mean to i don't mean to these are kind of sad times these are kind of weird times um it's kind of a sad movie <laughs> It is. It's a really fucking. It's a really fucking sad movie. Um, yeah, you spent yeah. months going over it in detail, but it's a little depressing. You know, uh, the more I've talked about it, the the more harrowing. <laughs> harrowing is actually, 
I never would have thought I would have used the word harrowing to describe uh, inherent vice when I started this thing like a year ago. I had to do like an LA detective that would have gone with like the nice guys or something. <laughs> I had to talk about it every day. <laughs> yeah, but the more I kind of live in this movie, I'm just like, God, this is this is a really sad story. And this is as much as I'm trying to buttress our episode right now with a glimmer of hope as we keep talking about how things are out of reach and getting colder and the children aren't running around anymore. We're in this kind of doomed pastel sunset as the last bit of hope of the American fate slides behind the mercury of the ocean. Um, I, I'm, you know, I would like to think that, you know, maybe there's, there's a, there's a glimmer of hope. Right. Right. I'm sure that, like, you know, Hey, the election's going to go great. We got that going for us. Right. Well, anyone, if everyone could just see your face after I said that, <laughs> you just, the lights just went off in your eyes and you went dead. You went absolutely dead. I've been through this too many times. <laughs> as has, as have these characters. And I guess that's kind of the point. Um, but, and maybe this is part of the beauty of those characters, or maybe the tragedy of those characters, or maybe both, is they've been through this so many times, and yet they are willing to repeat the same mistakes, hoping that things might be different this time. That's exactly how, exactly how the book ends, with Doc driving down PCH, lost in the fog, can barely see anything, but he's just hoping, hoping that something will turn out differently this time than before. And that's probably part of the tragedy of Doc, but I also wonder if that's part of what makes Doc the special character that he is, the hero that he is, uh, the lovable character that he is, is that he knows how bad things are. He knows how things, how far things are out of reach. He knows this don't mean we're getting back together. He knows the kids aren't running around anymore and he knows it's sunset, but he's going to keep driving down PCH and hopefully he's going to find something that wasn't there before, as as unlikely as it may be. And you have to give him credit. I think I you give PTA credit for that. Come on, come on, come on. If you're gonna love, if Magnolia is your favorite movie, you have. Yeah, to, no, no, no. I love, you have I'm to admit, like there's, there's some part of you. Window of light on Joaquin's eyes, like yeah. I don't care what they say during that scene. Like the visuals tell the story for you. Like the don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. It's a, it's, it's a narrow beam of light, but it's still a beam of light in the darkness, Sean. It's still a beam of light in the darkness. It's still a beam of light in the darkness. That's what this movie is. And you know what? That's what you, I'm going to be nice, even though you're hurting my heart. That's what you've been tonight. Uh, you, you, you you didn't let me ball my eyes out this time, which I got to say, I so appreciate. I so appreciate. I'm so happy I didn't make you cry. I'm, thank you so much for having me. I've been hey, show before, before you sneak off into the night, I see you trying to do it. I see you doing it right now. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell everyone where they can find your stuff to read. Uh, you can go, um, I write for WBUR's The Artery in Boston, and I write for a site called North Star Movies, but I collect everything for your convenience at spliceperson.com or my annoyingly hyperactive Twitter feed at Sean M. Burns. There you heard it. Sean, I gotta say, thank you for, well, first, thank you for completing the prophecy of old and appearing on every single iteration of One Heat Minute Productions possible. The stars have aligned. The, the man-goat has arisen. The, sky, the, the moon has gone red with blood. Uh, as you have, you have completed the prophecy as has, as has been foretold. Uh, and, and Blake and I very much appreciate you doing so. Uh, thank you for real, though, for coming on today and talking about this very heavy scene with me. This, this has been a blast. Uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. And please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to have lunch with Bigfoot Bjornsson. So how does this end for Bigfoot, for Shasta, for Doc, for us? 
for America. Does it ever end? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.